0: Welcome to the DGR Podcast. I'm your host, David Gray. Hello, guys. Welcome back. David here. I hope you're doing well. Even if you're not doing well, I'm actually pretty sure you're doing better than me. I had my stag party. Some of you might call it a box party last weekend, and I'm suffering a little bit far today, but I still have a brilliant podcast for you. Don't worry, I don't sound like this in the podcast uh, just today. So today I have Matt Matt McInnes Watson. Matt is a performance coach and specialist in track and field, speed, power, and plyometrics. He has a master's degree in athletic development, and he's currently studying for a PhD in plyometrics. Matt is the owner of a coaching business called Plus Plyos, and he provides plyometric programs for to athletes and coaches all over the world. We had an absolute brilliant discussion today, all about plyometrics. He's one of the I suppose he's probably one of the few people that I've seen around the world who talks about plyometrics that actually sees it through, looks at it the way I actually look at these things. That doesn't mean I'm right or wrong, it's just how I look at it. So I'm not interested in just pure like force, how fast can you get off the ground and just progressing people through levels as quickly as they can. So you start with extensive, you end up with intensive and you're just, you're just doing drop jumps or depth jumps or whatever the hell you want to call them. Matt looks at things a little bit differently as well, I think, which is like a full spectrum of movements that you might keep in throughout the year and sprinkle them in and there's deeper joint ranges. And we're talking a little bit more maybe about fluidity and, and kind of how the body organises itself and not just not just force all the time. So that was, that was really cool for me to actually come across someone like that. Um, Matt helped me understand plyometrics, how he classifies them, how he defines them, the tiers that he uses. We spoke a lot about what's happening in an athlete's body when they're in the air, when they're preparing for the collision. So there's a lot of people that talk about terms like co-activation, co-contractions, pre-activation, pretension, things like this, but they don't really probably know what they're actually saying. So we kind of dug into that a little bit. We dug into shin issues and Achilles issues and what might be happening with the foot contact here, how you might reintroduce plyometrics to an injured athlete. And um, we got very practical towards the end of the podcast. So, like, how would you actually write a program? How many movements would you put in the program? What type of movements are they? How many contacts would you be looking for? This type of thing. So we got very, very practical as we went on. I think it's a brilliant podcast. I can't wait for you to hear it. With regards the Stag Party, it went pretty well. We, um, I think about 17 or 18 of my closest friends, we, went, we got on an old rickety bus. Uh, a very old rickety bus and we went to in County Clare which is about three hours away from us we stopped on the way and went go-karting in Limerick in an indoor track it was actually very very good a couple of lads were like old grannies driving around but most of us they were very impressed with the with the quality of the Grand Prix so most of us did pretty well uh, I came third I took the bronze medal home I was I think I, I did okay my kart was possibly sabotaged wasn't as wasn't as good as some of the other carts on the track i think the guy in second wins. he took second place he he bet me by point one of a second on another day i think i should have probably got silver um I, I i think i could have got second i couldn't have got first tony my brother was way out ahead of all the rest of us he set. he almost got on his first time ever at that track and he almost got on the top 10 fastest times ever set at that track which is all set by people who go to the same track again and again and again. And um, so the guys were very impressed with him. He was miles out ahead. So I definitely couldn't, got, uh, couldn't have taken pole, but um, second was definitely in my grasp. After that, we just went drinking for the full weekend pretty much, and now here's me today. So I uh, have no Instagram posts to do today. I have no podcast to record. Uh, I'm gonna send a few emails and hit the couch after this, but uh, that, that was me these things have to be done and my voice goes every time I go drinking. So I know I cannot have clients the following day. Tomorrow I have a couple and then I think I'll be in flying form again by Wednesday. So here's the podcast with Matt. I think you're really going to enjoy it and please give it a share and a like and a subscribe and five stars and all of that stuff. I would really appreciate it. I think you're really going to like the podcast and learn a lot. Here is Matt from Plus Plyos. Matt, how are you? Thank you very much for joining me. Thanks ever so much for having me on. Appreciate it. What's going on? You're uh where where did you say you were
1: again? I'm in Abu Dhabi. I'm in the United Arab Emirates out in the okay. Middle East.
0: And it's getting hot.
1: It is, it is. We're all getting we're all getting a bit sad thinking about the, the summer months because we have we have glorious weather from like November to early March. And next week says mid-30s, so we know that yeah. is coming.
0: <laughs> it's snowing here in Ireland today so I'm not um I don't have too much sympathy for you um do you want to give us uh do you want to give us a bit of a background as to who you are where you are what you're doing and um we're going to talk about plyos today
1: yeah um so I'm a a failed athlete um as, as most of us are that, that are not
0: you're in good company
1: <laughs> um and was a you know, all sports kind of guy, played played football, English football um, until about 17 and then got into basketball and then was introduced to high jump. And then that's kind of been my massive route into jumping and plyometrics and speed and power training itself. Um, and to be honest with you, the, the biggest reason as to why I'm so passionate about it is because of the the coach that I had at the time, how he influenced me. Um, and him realistically being my mentor for probably close to 15 years now, since I was an athlete all the way through to being a coach now. So, um, and he's influenced my systems, the way that I coach, um, and the way that I look at movement as well, especially. Mm-hmm. And kind of going moving out of being a, a jumper. Um, I just started to coach track and field, um, and then just gradually kind of found my way into different rooms of, of sports Moving from kind of basketball to MMA, and I think that's just because of my my background and knowledge towards jumping in pliers and how that I could integrate that into into training systems um, a bit more effectively than what was being implemented at the time. Um, and we kind of found our way into into teaching, and now we're in the the UAE. I'm teaching out here full time, as well as kind of running a business and doing consultancy work on the side.
0: Who's the mentor?
1: My mentor's Eric Little. Um, he's very kind of he likes. He's the guy that doesn't want to be known about, and he's just he, like I'm trying. I'm dragging things out of him now. He's in his he's in his mid 70s now, and I'm I'm really pushing more of uh, you know him being confident about doing things like podcasts and mm-hmm. especially getting him onto our onto our website for plus um, mm-hmm. And he's going to he's going to be supporting a lot of that stuff. Um, cool. But yeah, he was involved a lot in the kind of the, the Polish integration in uh, Canadian athletics, a lot around um, like Gerard Mock's work and, and that big influence of the, the Eastern European side of, of, of jump training and, mm-hmm. and medical work back in the, the 70s, kind of 80s era. So really great kind of insight into things and having a relationship with Charlie Francis as well because he was based in Toronto. Um, so yeah, just great knowledge and and just just type of guy that's seen everything and you know yeah. nothing ever kind of surprises him and yeah. always a is, great way of explaining things so
0: is he still coaching
1: uh not so much at the moment he he was coaching up until about five or six years ago right. um, you know where where i was in the uk at the time you, you know what it's like when you're especially being involved in track and field he was a track and field coach mm-hmm. um we we don't have any indoor arenas in the uk down south so mm-hmm. it's coaching in five degree weather for 60 60 70 percent of the year so it's you know it's not it's not a, an older guy's game i don't think when it yeah. gets to that stage.
0: i just read charlie francis's book uh speed trap there a couple of months ago it's good Fantastic,
1: fantastic insights, isn't it it's just amazing yeah.
0: unbelievable so good to see the journey and just how he he like he pretty much had to figure it out as he went along and we have so many resources now and people to look to and videos and blogs and stuff. There wasn't that much.
1: No, there really, really wasn't. And it's, it's crazy. Even just some of the, the anecdotal stuff and the way that he talks about, like, you know, if Ben had not put his arm up and things like that, like how much mm-hmm. faster he would have ran and yeah, stuff like that is uh, my first, my first read of speed Trap was with a physical book um, and it was signed by Charlie because Eric gave me it he was like do not destroy this in any way because he signed this for me specifically so i had to be delicately reading it but now i've got a I've, I've bought a, a digital version of it so yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah do you think that um certainly in Ireland one of my one of my big regrets so i grew up playing we would call it soccer because we've Gaelic football hurling um played a bit of rugby all of these things i never i never did any track and field outside of like the odd school sports day, kind of, you know, these kind of things, and I actually remember I was I was pretty slow when I was younger, until I hit about maybe eighteen. I was I was quite not not super skillful, like, but I was decent with my hands and decision making wasn't too bad and stuff playing sports. But as an athlete, I wasn't very good. And then uh, sc coach here, a very very. Brilliant destiny coach in Ireland wrote me my first program, and it was in the off season. And I, I can actually remember going back to Gaelic football training in preseason, and we were asked to like just run and solo the ball. And I ran, I, I actually couldn't solo the ball, which is like just drop the ball onto your foot and, and take it back into your hands. You have to do it every four steps or something like that. I was going, I felt like I was going so fast that I couldn't solo the ball, and it was just after like three months of general old snc stuff and i remember when i was about 12 years old my friend had started uh actually even younger he went he was 10 probably and he went from like one of the slowest guys in our primary school class to one of the fastest guys in like six months and his form just changed and everything so i i said to my mom i want you to bring me to this athletics group um and we sat inside outside in the car outside the stadium where they were training and they never went in I was like, I don't know anyone in here, I'm afraid. And I, I, I got back in the car and we left. And it's such a regret because it, like, I think those people who got that training in Ireland, it's probably the same in England where there isn't as much track and field as maybe everyone is exposed to it in the States, I think. Do you think athletes are missing something there? So much. Mm-hmm.
1: Like, it, it should be... Uh, I think what we miss, like the, the US has really is seasonal-based... Like you move from playing football, and there's a basketball season, and they have baseball season, and they have track season, and there's there's a constant revolving door of, mm-hmm. of getting different skills and different physical work in that I think just builds such better all-round athletes. Um, and and arguably, I think getting guys to do things like the multi-events in track and field is the, the perfect way to be mm-hmm. like, go away for the the whole of the summer if you're a you know, if you're a soccer player, just go and do, go and do loads of multi-events training and, and play around with that. And and it's, it's sad because they it's really poorly participated in the UK in comparison to, you know, typical British footballists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the ironic part about it is I had no idea about track and field really until I was about 16, 17. I didn't even think about it because my f- my best friend had gone to like the British champs as a, as a high jumper. I was like, Oh, he's, he does that. And I just play football with my friends. Um, and then I came into high jump when I was 18 and it was a completely different world. And, and it's funny how quickly I'd look back at the type of people that I was playing football with and just think like, you guys are terrible. Like just poor movers. You you have no idea how out of shape you are, even as like a 16, 17 year old lad. And just movement patterns are terrible. Yeah, it's, it's sad how badly sport, you know, it takes away so much in terms of the physical capacities of individuals. Mm-hmm. You, know, playing, you see it with basketball players. They just spend so much time at a certain intensity of work and it just creates that, that kind of beast. And you're like, you know, is there, I listened to a bit of the, the Jake Tura podcast and you guys are talking about that. Like, you just spend so much time doing, you know, stuff that might not be, valuable it's yeah. <laughs> just paying random pickup basketball good for your game maybe yeah. but maybe it's really not and the yeah. physical side of it could be developed so well from that do
0: you do you think that because because in theory like i play basketball or football every day i get a, i get i get i move better and better and better but it doesn't necessarily seem to be the case where it seems to be like i get to i get i get to a certain baseline and then i kind of stay there for whatever reason do you think it's the ball that's that's doing that? I think I heard Fran, Franz Bosch talk about this before where he he like, I was on a webinar and he slammed soccer players, football players. He was like, they move like shit. I was like, oh, it's a little bit harsh. He was talking about like Premier League players. I was like, they are covering serious ground and doing serious things. Maybe that's a little bit harsh, but he was he was trashing them. I suppose he, he was holding his model of movement up there and, and comparing them to that. And he said it's because the intention of the system is to, like, control the ball, not to actually improve my sprint technique or my plyometric or whatever it is. And I think that maybe makes sense. What Do you, th- do you yeah. think it is the ball that's getting in the way of that or just the intention that I'm not actually here to make every step better?
1: It has to be. 400 of the world's best footballers can't move badly as footballers. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know what I mean? Like, it's... <laughs> they... And the goal is to be better at controlling a football and, and and holding possession and being able to manipulate the ball away from defenders and stuff. Realistically, it, it like it doesn't have to make sense biomechanically. Do you know I, mean? I think that it, how much do you give up in terms of the ball when realistic, you know, when you have people like footballers or basketball players, like they are, everything about them is about that ball. And, mm-hmm. and like I notice it, even as like a PE teacher, you, may, you notice it on the most basic level. There's a few kids that are amazing at football and a few kids that want to play basketball. You put any shape ball out and the footballers will play with their feet and the basketballers will pick the ball up. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's that inherently built-in thing that I, it's, I think it's really tough to look at those physical sides and say, oh, well, you know, they move terribly or they sprint badly. And like you're saying, all right, great but are they going to be able to move and run for 10 kilometers in a 90 minute game with fantastic biomechanical form? It's just not realistic. I don't
0: mm-hmm. think mm-hmm. their
1: bodies are intelligent enough to, you know, to, to figure things out a bit better. Yeah. Um, I guess the biggest problem is, is those guys that sit under those, you know, sub elite footballers, Like, why aren't they, is it the physical side that they could be working on or is it purely the football side and the mm-hmm. skill level? That's a question that I'm, Definitely not qualified to answer in
0: any way, shape, or form. But it's, I don't know if anyone is. Yeah, that's yeah. the problem. Um, but then the other argument is then so the argument you'll certainly get in Gaelic football and hurling in Ireland is why would I practice sprinting? Because I'm not going to look like a sprinter on the field. I'm not going to get upright like that and blah, 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 blah. I'm like that's such a weak argument. Yeah. You, you don't have to look like you say in bold sprinting firstly you won't that's like the same argument as someone who goes to the gym for six weeks and is like I don't want to get too big It's like you're not going to don't worry um but surely they can go and practice these when you when you look at I go down to um the RSC which is our uh, 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 track down here I worked with Waterford FC, which is our local football team. um The Irish league obviously isn't as strong as the English league, but like there's still some good players there. And I worked with them a few years ago, and we were we were training every day. The, the pitch was there, and the track was around it. So we'd see some very good um 400 meter runners who would be competing in in European championships and stuff like that. And I remember one day um we were walking off the pitch after a session with the guys and um, and there was two very, very good European 200 and 400s r- running and they were going hard now. And the guys nearly fell over looking at the efficiency. And, and I was like, you don't think that pr- practicing some plyometrics and stuff like this might not improve your how you move on the field? You know, it doesn't have to have a ball involved. Am, am I right? <laughs> I,
1: I think so. I think so. I think even if you wanted an
0: athlete to, or a
1: you know, footballer or whatever, if you want them to move faster or you, you, know, you want to bring in a speed side of movement or you know, more plyometrically based stuff, then they need to step away from the game anyway, I think, because the likelihood is their kind of unsafe movement mechanics is not going to be preferable for doing maybe if you're looking at maximal sprinting. Mm-hmm. So moving them onto a track, they're probably going to change things slightly anyway. But I think you want to impart more force, you, you, you've got to do it in more of a, you could call it more of a clinical way in comparison to like the field take them away from that um, and I, absolutely if you if you're not it's like training beyond the demands of the sport right you're you want some of that you want to be able to say okay I'm you know 20 minutes into a game and there's a there's a, an opportunity for me to unleash some of the stuff that I've been working on off of the field in a you know 5 second bout where I'm going to knock the ball past someone and sprint around them and, and you know get an equalizer or something like that it's it has to be there. You you can't, you can't just sit at this kind of very mellow level, especially with field sports. They, they, they move at such a slow velocity for a a long period of time. So endurance runners do speed work. They, they don't just run miles. They, there are inherent speed sessions within it. It might not be speed to a sprinter, but they're running 200s or they're running 300s. Yeah. Um, so it has to be there to to build capacities that are gonna, you know, notch up their their overall yeah. playing level.
0: Right? Yeah, and I think like those those physical qualities that they're maybe maybe built in from some plyometrics wor- workouts and some sprinting workouts and stuff like that that's still carrying over to sub-maximal work on the field during a game. Like your ankle is, is moving a bit better. Your foot is moving a bit better. You're a little bit more reactive. That has to carry over as well, doesn't it? Has to, has to. The
1: perfect example of that is my coach always used, to, always used to kind of go back to my mental Eric and say, like, why do we do speed work as a high jumper? Like I, mm-hmm. I don't have to potentially run that fast. So world-class high jumping is eight meters a second to jump, like, world-class 240, you know, top 10 ever. Um, and He said, "Well, let's say that it's your seventy percent of your maximal velocity." He said, "If your seventy percent is faster than the guy next to you, you're going to find eight meters per second or whatever that speed might be easier. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be able to, you know, use skills better because I'm at slower speed. I can understand things. It's easier for me to put things together. So like things like that are, are great examples of it. You're, if you're looking at improving sub maximal capacities." It's, it seems stupid to continually work at sub maximal capacity, right? Yeah. If you want to, you want to improve your five rep max. Getting stronger at the at the top end of it is going to help that. So it's yeah, there, there has to be a you've got to work past it in order for it to be lifted as well.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. So language wise, you're probably sick of talking about this because I have t- seen you talk about this. No, not necessarily. I'm certainly not here sick of hearing you talk about it, but. Um, classifying our plyometrics and I know you have different tiers of plyometrics so at least I think it's important to get the language right I'm definitely guilty of changing my language a lot depending on who I'm talking to and stuff like that but um, just something might sound right at the time and actually it's not correct at all so how would you go about firstly what is a plyometric movement how you classify them things and the tiers that you classify them into
1: yeah so plyometrics is the, the simplest form is well for me and how I interpret it is there has to be a landing and a takeoff sequence to the movement. Um, and it has to be pretty fast. <laughs> That's as simple as it gets. Um, and the contact time speeds, you know, are apparently 0.25 seconds and below. Um, if it's 0.26 probably still reasonably plyometric. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, there's like a bandwidth there. I think you're, you're playing with kind of 0.22 and 0.28 or something like that. As soon as you creep past 0.3 of a second, it's going to look slower. It's going mm-hmm. to use a less of an elastic property to the movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Is there somewhere yeah. that number initially came from? Um, so it initially comes from Verkachansky's um, stuff on, in Super Training where he talks about the, um, the amortization phase and how long... The, the longest amount of time you should spend in that for a plyometric. And he's, he speculated 0.15, which seems like a really long time. So I think if it was to be revamped today, I would probably put it more towards 0.1 of a second mm-hmm. in the amortization phase because the, the loading and then the pop out of it is probably going to be pretty fast. So if you're looking at a movement that's within kind of 0.22 or something like that, it makes sense at about 0.1, the yeah. amortization and that's that's when we're talking about you know a bilateral movement or something like that. Yeah. Um, unilateral stuff where you're you're moving towards more sprint stuff, we know how fast that is, that's kind of under point one of a second for world class. Um, and yeah, it's just really important to go with if it's got a landing and takeoff, it's probably really close to being plyometric. Like, and if if someone spends too long on the floor, when it when you look at it visually, it's it's In that that's how I look at things. There's there's a lot of Um, a lot of people that want to stay true to the shock method and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, there has to be super maximal force and and the ground reaction forces have to be super high, but all right, cool. Tell me what one movement is in comparison to another without having the, a force play there. So uh, if it, if it's relatively fast, then it's plyometric to me. Um, and if we were to kind of stagger our plyometric movements, um, I would, if we're looking at the language of, of different movements, I just go with three main ones: are a uh, two unilateral movements and one bilateral movement. Our bilateral movement, I term a leap. Two feet to two feet. Turned it a leap. Turned it a leap because Eric said these are leaps. So I'm like, all right, cool. Well, I'm going to use the word leap. Okay. <laughs> Some people cool. call it a jump. Um, maybe it's better to call it a jump, but I've gone with leap because I yeah. think. People get it twisted a little bit. Do you jump across a puddle? Do you leap across a puddle? Mm -hmm. Or do you pop across a puddle? Mm -hmm. Who
0: knows? (laughs) So I need to change my leaping language then because as I was coaching gymnastics a few years ago and they do a lot of, they would call it a split leap where they, maybe it's, see again, it's probably, it's not a plyometric then, because, yeah, (laughs) there's a split in the air, but maybe they're jumping off two. No, they're probably jumping off one and landing on the other. Yeah. So it's yeah.
1: more more of like a bound in it's
0: the air. Probably a bound, yeah, with that split in the air then. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So so yeah, that that's the bilateral side of things. If we look at the unilateral side of things, we've got the unipedal version and the bipedal version. So our bipedal version moving from one leg to the other, but on one limit at a time. I like mm-hmm. to use this terminology as well. So our unilateral bipedal movement is bounding from one leg to the other Mm -hmm. um and these are the ones that get destroyed the most it's hopping and bounding because people are like oh i'm doing i was doing one foot hopping and i'm like well it's just hopping then." or like one legged bounding and i'm like well why can't you just give it another name otherwise we're gonna yeah so (laughs) and the, the other is hopping uh unilateral unipedal movement you're just using one limb to propel yourself along continuously it's hopping so we've got our bilateral and our bilateral leaping can also be done in a split stance as well. Okay. Um, and that's in, I will call it a split exchange leap where you're moving the front leg back and forth. Um, and then we have a split stance leap where I just, you hold that split stance and you don't exchange.
0: Okay. Yeah. So there's no switch in the air.
1: No switch in the air. So one of them, the, the split exchange is the switch, the split stance is just, holding that stance.
2: Okay, cool. And,
1: and that is your, realistically, like name another form of, of human locomotion. It's pretty hard to come up with. There are, those patterns fit pretty much everything. Yeah. Um. obviously you have combinations. The only combination that I have a term for without it being like a hop step is what I call a jump. And I just use the, the wording from things like long jump and triple jump. We take off of one and you land on two. That's a jump to
0: me. Okay, cool. Okay, so I'm going to call out a few exercises, and you can just just to help clarify that. So, a yeah. double leg pogo on the spot is a what? Is a leap. Is a leap. Okay. Yeah.
1: So, you can call it a pogo leap if you wanted to. Like when yeah. you're looking at the, I know people like it's a stiff position, so they'll call it like a pogo. They love to use the word pogo, but then we get mm-hmm. one legged pogos. I'm mm-hmm. right like,
0: <laughs> So, a one legged po- pogo is a hop. Is a hop. Yeah. Is a hop, and that doesn't matter if it's in the spot or going forward. It's still a hop. Still a hop. Then going right leg to left leg and traveling in space or whatever is a bound.
1: Is a bound, yeah.
0: Yeah, and then so if I'm if I'm jumping off two legs and landing back in a like a split split position, that's yeah. a split Splits. leap. And then if I switch in the air, it's a split exchange leap. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Cool. Hopefully, that's not too confusing. No, no. I, for, for, I, I've got, I've got my head around that. I, I'm very close to you on the on the language stuff, anyway. Um, just the leap would be different for me.
1: I, I mean, I think, I think if you kept, if you can, what's important is the people that you work with. The language has to be, it has to work. Mm-hmm. If, it, if it's not, then used around the industry or whatever it might be, or within literature. Like I've, I've been doing stuff with my PhD at the moment, um, and I've written something um, on the terminology of things, and just asking for, you know, we're at a stage of research, why don't we have videos of what the movement looks like? Exactly. Why are we not at that stage? Like Mm -hmm. We're still in the stone ages of of writing online. You know, we might as well just be giving out, you know, printed out versions of literature now instead of, so I want to see like either a video or a kinematic movement description. Yeah. I want to see what that looks like. Um, but if if it's the same, it's the same terminology that you use throughout your organization or whatever it might your group of people, then it's great. And I think that you could interchange leaps and jumps if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. I, I don't see a problem with yeah. that.
0: I, I do think it's important for us to try and get to where we can have a, con- I can have a conversation with you and we know what we're talking about. Um, and, and with everyone, the research stuff, that's why I'm so skeptical of studies now because not not. I, i'm not a skeptic in general like i think the research is fairly solid and i don't really like people shitting all over it and stuff but like if someone talks about a simple movement a, a seemingly simple movement like we looked at this squat and whatever the adaptation of the squat was like show me the squat let me have a look at this squat to see what it looks like because there's a lot of different squats out there and then when you talk, start to talk about something like a plyometric movement it's so much more complex oh, so show cool. me the plyo yeah yeah you
1: absolutely know? and the, the systematic review that I'm just trying to publish at the moment, like just the the, the stuff of, <laughs> within plyometrics is <laughs> so bad. Mm-hmm. 1,400 papers and 700 of them weren't using plyometrics. Okay. Like straight off the bat, like they're just using counter-movement-based yeah. work. They, yeah. There is no landing to the takeoff sequence. Mm-hmm. Like straight away, like... In the in the title it said plyometrics, I'm like okay, cool, let me look at. It. No, it's not plyometrics. Yeah, and that that shows you straight yeah.
0: away. You see that everywhere. You see on Instagram, SNC coach, look how good I am at plyometrics, and they do a counter movement jump. You yeah. know, so um, that's interesting. What, okay, and then the tiers that you have in your in your coaching. Yeah. yeah,
1: so the tiers the tiers are pretty. I wouldn't say they're anything you know spectacular, but it's a, it's a great way to build like. I'll call it a plyometric spectrum. I don't like progressions to things because yeah. I think the, the spectrum should be there for all athletes and should just be used for different things throughout the, throughout the season. It's not like there's so much like I start at A and I finish a step yes. jumps and shot method. Like I, I really want to push that more and more. Like just because you're a world-class athlete doesn't mean that you can't be using the lightest forms of movement because yeah. it, it, there's value to that all the time. Yeah. so in terms of how that's scaled along the spectrum of kind of intensity we have we use a light tier which is very kind of extensive um we like to keep the ground contact time short because the ground reaction forces are, are pretty low so it, it's it's like doing the perfect phrase would be doing a light pogo for someone you know just it's very extensive there's a nice landing pattern we use that to do thousands of different variations of movements. Um, I think it's it's amazing for introduction to pliers. It's amazing for an introduction to a session. I think that athletes should be using it in every single warm-up that they, that they do, if they're doing any dynamic form of movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a great way for thickening tendons. Um, I found that more and more that I use, especially for female athletes, they're like high volumes of, of light kind of, plyometric movements and it's great for just building a little bit more resilience to tendons I've found, especially in the, in the ankle and, um, and lower limbs. And if we move along the the spectrum, we we've got our kind of, what we class as our medium tier, uh, which is pretty much exactly as it says, it's a, it's still a sub maximal plyometric, but it's quite more locomotive. You're looking at bounding and hopping, but it's not maximal. It's, It's typical extensive plyometrics, Um, and then the, the upper echelon is, is our maximal tier, which we, we class as ping. Um, and and it's just, just a a phrase that we've always used within our group of friends that I've worked with, um, and especially with Eric, my mentor. Um, and the, the final one is, I'll always say that it's not specifically biometric, but there is a landing and takeoff sequence to all of the movements. And that's what we call our deep tier. And we have a lot more of a deeper range of motion. I see a lot of, you know, there's a lot of people that use deep, long-range movement within the gym and stuff, but not a lot of people use it with a full landing and a full takeoff. There's always, like, stiff, resilient stuff when it comes to players, and it's special. Right? Like, that's the only way I can describe it. Like, I'm, I'm excited to try and do a little bit of research. After I finish my PhD, I'd like to do a little bit on that and, and look at what... It's coming from that because I'm, I can make speculations from what I see with it and, and how athletes really enjoy to use it for even doing things like if I want to get a bit more ankle mobility out of someone, I just do deeper range work. Yep. And especially with movement, like it, it, it can have a pretty good um, mm-hmm. correlation for that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And the relationship of it is really, really quite nice.
0: That's why you're saying you don't really like the word progression because the progression would imply that, okay, I'm following a, some Russian work here and I'm going to start with your um, lighter work or whatever, your extensive work. And then an athlete gets to the stage where it's just intensive. We're looking for like shock type work and there's never going to be any deeper, deeper um, joint angles are going into deeper dorsiflexion knee flexion hip flexion things like this and maybe if I'm a 100 meter sprinter maybe I don't need too much of that but definitely if I'm but maybe they do maybe they just need the opposite of what they're getting in their sprinting maybe just feel really good from doing it the I use
1: a lot of deep tier movements before I do acceleration sessions Mm -hmm. it's it has a great carryover people use things like repeated broad jumps don't they things like that like I Use similar things like that, and it's it's good because athletes are because especially in an acceleration kind of mechanic, when when you've got your foot out in front of you and your the foot has to stay stiff, but your your pelvis has to move over the top of it. The deep tier stuff, you might you might still have a pretty stiff ankle for that athlete when they do deep tier movements,
2: mm-hmm.
1: still have to transition and be able to hold that force on that, you know, that position of that foot. Um, when, it, when it's in a bit more of a vulnerable position as opposed to being directly upright in a solid posture. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it, it, it does have a slight crossover into quite a few different sports, which I, I yeah. find really valuable.
0: Yeah, I'm really interested in that work. I, I came across, um, I don't know, you probably haven't, but there's a, there's a company called Fighting Monkey They're kind of into like Edo Portal world and stuff like that. And they do a lot of, um, it's kind of dance type movement, to be honest. You you pay a lot of money to go to a workshop where you could have went to a dance class, but they do coordinations where like, it's really the arms are swinging. They coordinate the swing of the arms with like little hops or little bounds and stuff like this. And then they all coordinate it into a dance. I was looking at some of that stuff. I was like, that's actually really nice. Um, Aside from aside from you don't need to learn this exact coordination, you just need to learn what they're trying to teach from it. That's really, really nice. And I even put up a video on Instagram the other day of an athlete who I was saying like these kind of slightly, not older athletes, but athletes who have had a lot of injuries over the years, how they stiffen up, they're waiting to hit the floor. And it's like this brace through their entire body. Like we talk about co-contractions around the ankle, which is a good thing and all this stuff when you're preparing for contact, but you just see co-contractions in their entire body in the air and, um, just to, sometimes like you just like let the arms relax. I don't care about how short the contact here, here is, I just want you to actually feel the floor so that you can then move away from it onto the other leg and stuff like that. And I think maybe your deep tier stuff is very valuable, more valuable than people think.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. There's so much to it. And it, by the way, I'm so happy the way that you explained that you, you know, you're, you're visually seeing so much with, with athletes that. You know, everyone talks about co-contraction and how valuable it is and preparing for the floor. But rocks don't bounce for a reason. Like <laughs> that's the perfect phrase for it. Like you, you can't go uh, and then expect to be like, "I'm ready for the ground." Mm-hmm. What do they say about people that are intoxicated when they mm-hmm. when they fall over or get hurt? There was those, they're big accidents and they're like roll out of something. <laughs> they're, completely, they're completely fine. Yeah, there's no co-contraction. They yeah. just they just move like rubber off the floor. It's the same principle. Obviously, there needs to be that stability of the the lower leg, but yeah, the that side of, of of training is really starting to come in, and I've been I've been working a lot more in that space. You know, there's so much on the 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 ground side of work, but the what's happening in the air is becoming more and more important. And mm-hmm. we we kind of swept past that research that came in about preactivation and. And preparing for the floor, and you know, Comey and the, the guys in in Finland have done a lot of that stuff. And then we kind of swept past them. We've not kind of re-entered it with, I think, more of a coaching side to things and mm-hmm. understanding what that looks like visually, rather than trying to test it yeah. in some way or form. Um, because I think the testing side of it is quite limited anyway.
0: But yeah. So when 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 you say pre-activation, then so what's what's happening what what does that mean to you first of all what's happening at my body when I'm preparing for that contact actually maybe not use my body but someone who can jump um what's happening there what does that mean to you how 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 activated am I and where are we talking about the pre-activation obviously around the lower leg like but how far up my body does that go or do we do we know is, or is that a really hard question no
1: no no it, it's the research that's out there and that has been relatively quality research, um, it's a lot of its surface EMG stuff. So, you know, however v- valid you, you see that form of testing is you know, is entirely how you view that. But there's there's some research to suggest that the the contraction of some of the lower leg muscles are at a, in world-class athletes are about 80% of maximal um, contraction
0: before they hit the floor. Before they hit the floor. oh,
1: nice. So there's and there's a quite a, a steep correlation for that, and they they found that they were using uh, triple jumpers,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and they use in Finland. They use some world class. Okay, maybe not world. You know, not they're not going to win Olympic medals. These guys, but they they're probably you know tapping on being able to make things like the European Championships. So they're <laughs> they're pretty good athletes and there was quite a drop off when it came to like just a standard national athlete. There was more around like the 60% marker. Um, and they found that the elite athletes were able, were pre-activating for longer periods of time. So like before the Southern league guys, um, and the rate in which they like sped up their contraction in terms of what was read on that was, you know, was like a steep curve. It was Mm -hmm. kind of like, it was like a dull, and then oof, it mm-hmm. skyrocketed. You know, yeah. The this, this sub-elite guys, it was kind of like a, I'm, I'm getting ready for the ground. Oh, And that's probably the bit that I've missed. A lot of that is, I now understand it in terms of the research that I've read. And I look back to guys and think, that's why I didn't understand it at that time. Mm-hmm. I see that that guy's not pre-activating well for the ground. And that's how I understand the, stability around a joint now and, and how i look at how energy is coupled so mm-hmm. when you look at the muscles that are you know, the what you want to be preactivated you're looking at things like tibs you're looking at gastrocnemius um i don't know anything about the 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 feet because i think that's probably up there with some of the most important stuff that yeah. you could probably find and, and the the links into you know, halicus longus and things like that. I think they would be that would be really, really good stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But again, not sure how that would work. Trying to trying to get EMG readings on a foot and how that would then move around when you hit the ground. So yeah.
0: yeah. And then what about? Is there anything there around like VL hamstrings stuff? Like yeah, that? a
1: little bit. I think there's there's quite a quite a big relationship, especially with unilateral movements for things like uh, VMO is quite a high. Um, yeah. And ham, hamstring, it can't, I think there's a, there was a relationship between VL and hamstring being relatively similar in terms of the timing. Yeah. Um, and VMO, um, I think was a kind of like a, a fast spike and kind of held there to be like, yeah. right, I need to be ready for this. I
0: think so. You know. Yeah. It's gotta be, I think, um, yeah. that'd be interesting to see which.
1: Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to revisit that stuff in terms of the actual the data on that
0: because it, yeah. it intrigues
1: me to, to dig a little bit more into maybe what, has come out more recently. Yeah,
0: uh, it's really just, interesting because like you hear people talk about these words, you know, pre activation and stuff. And what what does that what what do they mean when they say that or what are people what are again like the the terminology we're using? Are we talking about the same thing here? You know, I yeah. think I think then that just maybe kind of made sense to me there that, that those those elite or just sub-elite athletes then looking at them in, in the air I would imagine then their upper body looks more relaxed and it's probably a nervous system, a brain that's, that's saying, okay, you have the ability to preactivate and co-contract distally. So you don't need as much proximally. And I would say it's the exact opposite then for someone in the rehab process or uh worse athlete like me, who I feel like, okay, I can't do this distally. So I'm trying to just, just get some tension wherever I can. And next thing my neck, my jaw is tensing and all of this stuff and, and, whether you can cue someone out of that, I don't know. Probably not. Whether it's just a case of finding the right variation for them and actually giving them some reps and building confidence in that. I don't know. What do you think there? Is there, is there a cue you can use?
1: There, there are kind of very basic beginner cues that I think last maybe a, a few weeks. Um, but it has to, has to be part of a subconscious motor pattern. It, it cannot be conscious because then that's then when we bring in the, the co-contractions in places where you don't want it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what you get. Obviously, if we were to look at the novice guys in comparison to kind of, you know, sub elite triple jumpers are still better movers than the average Joe Block. So the, the novice guys will, will, they'll skyrocket in terms of how much they can react to over a short period of time. But mm-hmm. that difference between the sub elite and elite is, is that difference of, of subconsciousness and it, and it being a kind of, a response to elasticity and, and, and knowing that when I whip my foot into the ground, um, if we, especially if we're talking about things like triple jump, um, that there's a, there's a volition in that, that I'm not afraid to handle at X speed. Cause that's also what is, is a, has a big correlation in things like triple jump is the velocity in which you're carrying it into hitting the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and hopping is unique in that as well. And I'll always use hopping as a really good way to teach subconscious overload to, to a guy. You, you'll understand that, um, I put, put a video up of, a, of novice hoppers in comparison to like a pro hopper. They'll they'll hold that leg in extension. They, they will not pick that foot up and whip it back down into the ground. Yeah. And that's because they don't want to handle the overload. Yeah, They don't want that force. Um, yeah. Whereas when you get to more of an, uh, you know, more of an intermediate or, or elite version of, of someone that can hop well, you're dealing with, a leg that has to whip through at twice the speed as a, as a bound an alternating stance, um, which automatically spikes the ground reaction force, whether you like it or not. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the best movers are then able to deal with that force and continue propulsion. So using hopping is like the ultimate way in teaching subconscious patterns because you have to, you have to have that leg back down there for you to continue to propel yourself. Um, and and it's, it's the same feeling as coming down stairs in the middle of the night and you think there's another step and you go, woof, and you catch yourself. That's hopping mm-hmm. into it, like, constantly. So it's,
0: yeah, it's something that, yeah. That's the gold standard for me in terms of rehab. If I had someone with a knee injury, Achilles, it actually doesn't matter what the injury was and they need to get back sprinting and stuff like that. If they can demonstrate to me that they can hop for distance, but not a hop, 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 but uh, actually cycle that leg in the air and come back to the floor. Like I, I don't need to ask them anything else. Their, their body, their nervous system is showing me we are confident here. I'm pretty much ready to do anything else once, once I can get that movement done. The cycling, that, that's the action that you're talking about. That cycling action rather than just keeping that leg stiff.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly the big that. difference. Yeah. It's, it's the, yeah, it's that subconscious effect that you, you, you have no, you have no control over it. If you, if you want to maintain that,
0: um, that biomechanical
2: position. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Okay. So that's the, that's the kind of preactivation stuff. So th- this is starting to get into a speculation because maybe we don't know then, but when that foot hits the floor, I leave you choose the type of movement that you, you want to use in, as an example. But so our, the best athletes are going to be 80% activated or something like that. Um, when that foot hits the floor, then what do you think is happening at the muscle? So let's say like soleus or gastrox or something like that. And what do you think is happening at something like the Achilles tendon? Because there, seems, there seems, people seem to be unsure about that. Is that. Is the muscle actually eccentrically loading is it isometric or is it actually maybe concentric concentric, so they can actually stretch the tendon more traditionally we would have thought right foot hits the floor heel is going to descend muscle is eccentrically loading then there's an isometric then there's a concentric i'm not so sure i think if we if we look at the achilles stuff um there's been some
1: conflicting thoughts in my mind because of, of some of the recepts that I've read and people are saying that there, there is concentric contraction of, of calf um, for you to get
0: more of a pull on... As the heel descends.
1: As the heel descends. Which
0: is the opposite of what you would have taught tradition years ago.
1: Well, yeah, not not as the heel descends, but as the shin moves forward.
0: As the shin moves forward, yeah. As
1: yeah. you get positive shin angle. Mm-hmm. Um, I... I'm a little scared that it goes along with the S and C kind of co-contraction world. You know what I mean? Like everything has to be solid ready. And I'm wondering if that, I get a little bit scared that it's a bit towards that direction of things. And the speculation of it is a bit much because I'm not sure about the active relationship of, of when I concentrically contract, like how, how does that work with the tendon? I I feel like it's more of an isometric. Um, I feel like the muscle is already positioned for those top guys. I think that maybe as you're coming in, there's some sort of contraction. And then as you land, there's an isometric stance to that. And the tendon takes the lengthening. Mm -hmm. And then as you move through the stance, what I get confused on is how can you, I don't know how the muscle will work as it moves through the stance of it. You know, as you move through mid stance and off of toe off, how do I go from a concentric contraction and then concentrically contract out of that? It, it, yeah, you know what I mean. Like, and the relationship with what pulls on what at what time. Yeah, it's really, it,
0: yeah, it, it, it destroys my head a little. Bit, thinking yeah, about, it's hard. It has to like, yeah, it's hard. There has to be. So the, the key thing for people to probably understand is the muscle is trying to shorten all the time, even if it's eccentrically length loading and lengthening. It's trying to shorten. It's just not winning that battle. So. I think that's maybe where people get confused. Maybe, yeah. maybe. Yeah, I don't know.
1: I think the, what would be interesting is to, is to see the, the change in length of tendon and how. what I really would like to see is the speed in which it, it changes length and how, that, how, how you can look at that between an elite and a sub-elite guy. I'd really like to, to know whether, if you've got like a really elastic triple jumper in comparison to maybe more of a power guy, how does that relationship change? Or if you've got a guy that's more stout and has a bigger, thicker calf in comparison to like a, a West African high calf and really long tendon-based, um, that sort of stuff really interests me to see how quickly that might change in length in comparison to mm-hmm. other league guys and, and the relationship to, you know, how that carries elastic transfer and, and energy through. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's
0: <laughs> Yeah, there's no answer there yet, but... I look, I I find it really interesting, really interesting. Um, So when someone, do you, would you, do you use the word stiffness? Is that a word that you would use in your vocabulary when describing plyometrics?
1: When I, are you talking about when I coach? Not
0: necessarily when you coach, but like, so I hear a lot of people, there's a bit of an argument maybe online about like, is, is stiffness because there is some movement there, because there is movement, why should we use the word stiff? Because nothing is stiff. Is, would would you use the word stiffness? Not in coaching an athlete, but when describing a movement.
1: Yeah, I think it's. I think it's a. It's a word that has. I think it has some sort of biomechanical connotation to it. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that there's there's not freedom of movement through it. So do you know what I mean? Like you're if. I can't think of another term that I would use, put it that yeah. way.
0: And if you were um, using it, what would you be what would you be describing then in the movement?
1: It depends because sometimes like when I when I discuss stiffness, it has to, it, there's a relationship to whatever I put to it. So it might be that I if I'm talking about tendon stiffness or if I'm talking about joint stiffness. Yeah. I think that there's a there's different timings as to when that happens. And I think the joint stiffness part is more towards the neurological side than it is towards the physiological side of, of adaptations. You know, you you might get joint stiffness, and great. I've got athletes that you know they're doing loads of pogo's and they're getting really stiff Achilles tendon. But all right, cool. When you hop at, in a horizontal momentum-based fashion, what happens? Does my Achilles hold that stiffness? No, it doesn't because it doesn't have the it doesn't have that neural connection to understand when to how I'm pre-activating and the relationship to the rest of the stirrup of the, of the ankle and how that has, how that works backwards and forwards with, with what holds stiffness at a given point. So yeah, yeah there's, there's definitely two sides to it. And we, we're getting at the moment this all encompassing stiffness word. And I think there has to be a slight separation to that.
0: Yeah. Um, that's what I mean. Yeah. That's what I mean. And then if you're talking about joint, joint stiffness, so we're, is there a point in your this might and this might be with coaching, like where, where would you start to think? Okay, actually someone's missing some range of motion where the ankle here is actually not moving well enough, the midfoot isn't moving well enough, or the heel bone isn't moving well enough. And is that is that something you would consider, or with regards to like, okay, I can do some mobility work to help them, or is that maybe just they need to relax like in their plyometrics a bit more and try not to be as stiff or does that just depend?
1: I, I mean, I use some anecdotal stuff um, of when I see an athlete that, that lifts their heel too early in the, in the transition of a, of a landing and takeoff. Um, I often just do a, a very crude, simple measure of knee, knee to wall um, and just see what the dorsiflexion um, distance is. And often an athlete that's not kind of between 12 and 15 centimeters, um, often displays that, Mm -hmm. you know, it's It's anecdotal. Um, but a lifting of the heel has quite a a big relationship with Achilles issues because the, the Achilles is, is not getting the support of the hip as you move, as the shin moves positively. Um, and, and that extension needs to happen further up the chain before the foot can kind of uncoil off the floor. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you do just get too much stress in the Achilles. So I just use simple measuring tools like that to, to assess a basic level of stiffness. And if there's a, you know, a an extra nuance to it where it still doesn't have a relationship, then that's when I'll look at integrating things like deep-tier movements and seeing how that then happens um, mm-hmm. Different timings and stuff because it again it could be, it could be an air based thing. It could be a co contraction in the air that's that's messing with like I'm too. It's too much for me in terms of the overload and therefore I need to get off the foot quicker. Yeah. Things like that have a have a bit of a a correlation too. Yeah. So yeah, that's a real simple method that I use and it does have quite a good, um, just you know result that I've found is. Just some simple dorsiflexion work that has been quite effective in, in making sure that it kind of reduces Achilles issues, especially.
0: Yeah. Um, when you When you talk, or, or when you're looking at the what's happening when the foot is hitting the floor in terms of foot contact, can you can you kind of is is there a sweet spot? And obviously, that will depend on the plyometric that you're actu- actually doing but maybe you can give us a few different examples of a couple of different types of plyometrics and and where you might see that foot contact or where you might see it actually go wrong. Or is that, again, is that too, too broad?
1: Do you know what? I I don't actually think that there is much of a difference between any landing. Like I I genuinely don't feel like it. I, I, I don't like the idea of rolling from the heel to the toe when you use unilateral based horizontal movements, because it, If if your heel goes down first, it says to me that there's a breaking force involved um, and you're trajecting with your heel, which I -hmm. I often find that there's an extension pattern um, that's come all the way through the knee and the the force that you're going to get in your hamstring as opposed to stacking it more into your hip and how that goes through the rest of your posture. I think there's a bit of that 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 gets thrown around um, by coaches, isn't it? I don't think it is as effective as trying to get the foot underneath the hip all the time.
0: Yeah. Um, so you know would that we, be more would that be more of a midfoot contact then.
1: Yeah so so where I where I look at things I, I coach a full foot landing. Not mm-hmm. flat foot but full foot because flat doesn't sound good. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah full foot landing where I get athletes to aim for a certain part of their foot when they're learning how to do things and maybe when I, if I need to reintroduce that. As a coaching cue, but to look just behind the, the kind of knuckle of the ball of the foot, you know, there's like a tickle spot underneath there, which I think has a good relationship with how the plantar, flex, uh, plantar fascia flexes a little bit and how that receives load. Um, because I think if it's any further forward than that, then you're getting more of a forefoot loading, which again, it, you know, does it lift the heel? Yeah, so that could have a slightly different relation to that. Yeah. But most of the time that means in a, in a good solid hill, heel supported trainer that you're
0: going to get a full foot contact. Yeah. Um, so and the heel will be, it will be coming down. Obviously it will be hitting the floor. Yeah. But You're not actually queuing like a, a, a heel contact first where it's, I'm going to roll onto the midfoot from there. It's more, it's actually probably more I hit midfoot and then I hit heel rather than I hit heel. And then I hit midfoot.
1: Yeah. 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 Okay. I'd say that most of the time, honestly, with a, you know, with a good, Example for me is using a, like a good solid Asics or Mizuno running trainer that, that's quite stiff in the midfoot. It does have a slight heel to it. And mm-hmm. You can walk through it well. You're going to land full foot. It's yeah. going to be quite a, a full foot landing. And it's, yeah. at the same time, I think that it does have um, good kind of dynamic um, connotation to it and the way, the way that it places underneath your hip. Because that's, that's more of an important part to it for me is not thinking about so much about where you're, you're landing on your foot, but more towards where you're landing in relationship to the center of mass. Yeah. Um, you're always, you know, if you're moving horizontally, you're always going to land that foot slightly out in front. That's, that's locomotion for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but our goal is to try and get it in, in a queue. I think is to try and get it as close to under the hip as possible because mm-hmm. they're always going to want to produce more force. And to do that, I put my foot further out in front of me to get more of a pull yeah. um, and more time on the ground to do that.
0: Yeah. And um, then is there, is there anything, any commonalities you would see with something like shin shin splints or maybe someone with Achilles issues in terms of maybe where they're contacting the foot or anything else? Big, big
1: relationship with four foot landers and, and, uh, and shin issues. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I find mm-hmm. that, that uh, and, and the same, I, I, I see issues with shins with, with heel first landers because you'll often see that there's, and there's a real um, increase in ground contact time as well, because you, you often get that the heel lands and then you get this snap of the, like the tib's anterior really struggles to control it. So you get like a whack of the front of the foot. Mm-hmm. And I think that puts way too much stress on that. Um, and Tips posterior as well, in terms of the, the struggle that the athletes t- tend to get in there. Um, I It's often because of how much tension they're getting through soleus when they're trying to hold more of a forefoot contact. Yeah. Um, there's just constant fatigue through that. I always do that with jumpers. They're like, oh my, my shin's are sore. And I'm like, let me have a feel for the belly of that muscle. And they're like, oh my, that is so bad. They're always, con- always complaining to me about shin splints. And I'm like, it's probably... It's probably the muscles in and around there that are just absolutely fried.
0: Jacked definitely. up, yeah. 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 But I see definitely with shin, shin issue people, it's very hard. Firstly, they probably just did too much as well. Um, but, why, but why it was too much for that exact structure, that's another question. Like, So why wasn't it too much for... Your knee, or why wasn't it too much for your hip or whatever? It, w- it was the shin that got it. So maybe there is some biomechanical factors here. And then the 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 too much happened, like the injury happened or the issue happened as a result of doing too much, but because of the factors that were there, maybe in the first place. I de- I definitely think I see I'm careful with making claims or anything, but I see an inability, complete inability usually to, to use the midfoot. And um kind of makes sense because that's where all the joints in the foot are as well there should be some some yield there into the floor and joints are there to this obviously like if you think about my spine I can move my spine I can pick up a pen I can round my full back to pick up a pen and spread the load across the full spine look at the foot all the all the complexity in the foot is in the midfoot someone actually can't move that midfoot so like that force is just shooting straight up into the body and I haven't dispersed anything before it's got there so yeah yeah. just when you just look at a foot, that should kind of make sense.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I find as well that there, when there's more of a four-foot landing, um, I think there's a higher co-contraction of your soleus. Um, mm-hmm. Over it overrides how much co-contraction is in the calf.
2: Mm-hmm. When
1: you have more of a toes-up position as you're coming in to co-contract, to then whip down, you have like a like an opposite and equal reaction of what's firing and what's like releasing at the right times when someone's coming in. often see like a novice guy that's kind of got their, their toes out in front of them legs are straight and they're wondering why you know they're getting sore shins or in behind the shin is sore and I think that it's just too much and then the subsequent action of it is the heel drops so fast yeah and like you say the reverberation of force just flies up there
0: yeah yeah so you're almost seeing like two two opposite ends of the spectrum one is hitting the one is hitting the heel down first Yep. quite a lot and then the rest of the foot just slaps into the floor and then the opposite is one is hitting the toes down first and then the rest of the foot is slapping down into the floor and yep. it with all movement as well, hopefully maybe finding that middle ground. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I will say as well for bilateral movements um, that people, people go with that cue of being able to kind of slide a credit card underneath your heel when you yep. land bilaterally. And I think that there's some... There's, there's a safe measure to that. I, I don't normally find an issue with bilateral movements as opposed to what I do with unilateral movements. I think yeah. you can get away with more, more of a, a little bit more up into the forefoot, but not dramatically more.
0: Yeah. Okay. In that instance, like, is, the, is any amount of calf raises, tibialis anterior work going to actually help? It will flush out the muscle a little bit and give it a chance to lengthen and shorten, but if I don't change the pattern, I'm probably going to struggle.
1: I honestly, we had a track and field group of jumpers and triple jumpers. And for me to say that we probably accumulated over a thousand landings a night on some of our big flyer nights and we would walk away without shin issues. And we, in, in my eight years as a high jumper, I didn't do a single car phrase and I, I jumped seven feet in the high jump. So, yeah. and I never did any, any shin work whatsoever. that, that for me like light tier plyometrics there
0: you go wow. yeah <laughs> yeah that's so that's so interesting and then well that's the, that's the accumulating the body of work obviously again if you if you're as a kid if you can play basketball all your life it's going to be a lot better than trying to reintroduce plyometrics without any sport when I'm 25 years old or something like that exactly um, Yeah. Okay. So then it's very, it gets very difficult because the thing for an Achilles issue or a shin issue is training plyometrics and training them really well and getting the contacts in. But the reason they can't get the contacts in is because they have the issue. So it's it's (laughs) like a a vicious circle that I think a lot of coaches, a lot of rehab professionals struggle struggle with that, including me. It's hard, you know.
1: I I think the you know we can we can play the hindsight card a little bit, but it's Mm -hmm. It's a case of educating people enough so that, you know, having an athlete that's able to handle hundreds of, of light landings before they ever get to a stage of having an Achilles issue is probably going to sort them for life. Yeah. Like I genuinely in, and I've, I've probably been doing plyometrics, I'd say at least every 10 days for the last 12 years. And I aim to try and do it until the age of 60. Like that, That's my goal because I think I'm I'll never ever have a, a, an issue with falling in, in older age because of that I think that's yeah. that's a big piece of research that needs to be put out there yeah. like teaching people how to land yeah. um, I've never ever had an Achilles issue and it's yeah. because of just the accumulative load of just being able to continue tapping into that um, yeah. and and again anecdotally it's not not a, a, an area that I find to have issues with my athletes especially
0: um, mm-hmm. That it's. I see you jumping, you can use your foot really well, <laughs> really, really well. Um, I will, have you have you done have you done um, force plate like work on not 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 necessarily on plyometrics yourself, but on on strength in terms of strength in the lower leg and stuff like that? Have you ever checked that?
1: A, a little, not not too much. Um, can't remember if we did any like um maybe back when I was in uni like I, I had quite a good team around me when I was in uni I had a good SNC team and stuff but mm-hmm. I think I can't remember I know we did we did some um like isokinetic testing and stuff like that to test strength but yeah I can't remember the force plate stuff yeah. we did we did plenty of takeoff stuff we did do some biometric stuff but isolated stuff um yeah. not yeah. too much no yeah. um what I'm interested in is seeing a physio in the next kind of five ten years and then to be like why are you like why are your tendons like I remember the first physio I ever saw like your Achilles tendons are huge and I was like, <laughs> I was like you just never dealt, you've never never dealt with a jumper before I think mm-hmm. but yeah it's uh I often get that that you know trying to manipulate things as well especially when you're dealing with a stiff athlete I- yeah, trying to manipulate the heel and stuff when you've got a sprinter that, that works on a, yep. on a foot that does not move a lot. Yep. So, yeah, it helps
0: so. though, doesn't it? The minute, That's the one place I'm not a big fan of manual therapy. I think it's fine. I don't like doing it because <laughs> I'm lazy and I think there's better ways. But the one place that I think manipulations and um, mobilizations can really work is the heel bone and maybe the first met. I think that can help people get into their midfoot and they can feel like you see Achilles issues going away very quickly when they start to get, be able to get just some movement there.
1: Yeah. I I remember, I remember having issues with, uh, with getting a little bit of pain in, in, in and around like this kind of in and around the the major joint of the heel and stuff. Um, Especially when I used to jump in the cold, I don't know what it was just the cold weather just didn't do well for me. Mm-hmm. And we started to play around with manipulation through there and, and gliding through the tailors a little bit and how that supported things. And it, it was like a click of feeling like it would, something would happen. And this release of fluid into my joint and I'd be like, right, I'm ready to go now. And it, yep. it it was instantaneous in terms of the, the way that yep. it affected it. So yeah, there, there has to be a little bit of movement in there and I, I, I do tend to especially when I was coaching track and field athletes I did used to just do before a major competition just basic stuff Um, Mm I'm definitely far from anyone that's within the rehab world but just Mm -hmm. basic stuff
0: yeah look literally when I say to clients like just get your hands on the bone and see does it move and then just move it around a bit um it doesn't have to be fancy and that's why I kind of asked about the stiffness question earlier because I see coaches talking about joint stiffness and stuff like that I'm like do did, did they actually believe that there should be zero movement here then? And I think maybe some people actually do, you know? Yep. So uh, how do you, when you say like some of your athletes about the landings you're getting through, is that, is that how you measure work done with them? Or are you measuring work done? Obviously you're counting landings. Is that, is that the best way of doing it?
1: And um, I, I always, I always say this to to coaches. It, in terms of the demographic that you work with, I think that you just have to go with this. you, if you're working with an individual, count their landings. If you're working with a group, count the distance in, in volume uh, traveled. I, you have to know the, the movements when you do that, though. Like you, you have to know like what 30 meters of hopping for distance is in comparison to 30 meters of bounding for height. Is. Like you have to build that knowledge into your, mm-hmm. um, into your programming and stuff, but When I work with, you know, a team of 15 basketball players, I'm not counting their landings. I don't want them to concentrate on counting. Like it's, I'd much prefer them to just travel over a certain volume of distance. And you know what, it it started to make me think a lot more about, um, like, why don't don't sprint coaches count the steps that they, you know, that's my volume of measuring. Because you've got, you know, a 20-year-old world-class athlete and a 15-year-old kid and they're like, right, you're going to do 120s tonight. And you're like, wow, how much further did that 15-year-old kid run? How many mm-hmm. more steps? It's made me think a little bit about that recently. But yeah, that tends to be the way um, that I'll, I'll measure things. Just It's just dependent on the, the cohort that I'm working with. Yeah. Um, but if you're working with big groups, distance is your best friend. <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. Um. Kind of not not last question, but I, I want to know, just maybe a little bit more practically, right? So, say I am dealing with a, a client with Achilles issues. or Just rehab in general, right? So, someone has Achilles issues. There's, there's, there's two reasons I think it can it can go wrong a lot of the time. One, they never they never cleaned up the issue in the first place. So it could be a, the calcaneus, it could be the the landing, probably a mixture of those things. Maybe the upper body, and they just the 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 physio, whoever just prescribed here, just do more calf raises. And that will feel good to an extent because I'm just getting some kind of stimulus through the area. And then two, so, so I see them like get back to plyometric type movement and then it's like, okay, it's a bit better, but the the issue that was there in the first place is still there. And I can't, I hit a wall. I can't progress. Second reason is when it, when it comes to getting back into coaching speed it, speed in the movement, the, the cues then again are like you're still focused on feel this, feel that, a top down kind of cue, squeeze this, squeeze that. Um, and again, I don't think that, I don't know if that's going to work too well, especially from a physio's point of view. Like they're so used to proprioceptive type of cues and all of that stuff. And then coaching speed is, is reflexive in nature. What's, what's a good place to start to introduce some plyometric type of stimulus and then? what's a good way to think about maybe progressing on? It doesn't have to be like super specific, but what would come to your mind if you're working with an athlete who maybe has a lot of injuries and, and you need to, you need to start to, to bring some of this stuff back in, in a safe way.
1: Yeah. The like, light tier movement is, I always, always preach a lot of light tier movements, especially. I've got a, a, a British guy that I've been working with. He's, he's actually 45 Um, and he's he's he still dunks a basketball like he primarily it's just a dunker sort of thing um and he uses he uses our plyometric programs um and i'd say over the last six months has just used light tier movements um and it's cleared up his achilles issues dramatically Mm -hmm. um just being able to build in a a volume of that kind of work but making sure ultimately that it's it's not just a simple linear focus motion. There's a lot of multi-directional work, um, and especially backwards work. Um, and I, I really, really like the way that um, the foot loads the, the ankle in in terms of backwards movement because there is more of a. I get athletes to transition from the toes off of the heel, mm-hmm. um, and it seems to have a, quite a good correlation with that. So. I think that the, the progression then comes around just having a, that relationship with the athlete and understanding what, what brings about pain, especially. Um, and yeah, there has to be a constant flow of communication as to being like, okay, well, we're just going to ramp up these abilities, especially if it's you're only moving bilaterally. But we can do thousands of variations bilaterally. We mm-hmm. can bring in a split stance, which is going to maybe load the front foot in a better way, or we can focus on that back leg getting a better load because it's more up on the, on the toe yep. you know, getting a little bit of a reflexive action to it. So it's difficult. It's really, it really is difficult. And especially like volume of plyometric of, of training is terrible. That Like tell me right now, you know, how many landings should I do a week? Yeah. Who knows?
2: Yeah. No Who idea.
1: <laughs> right. And, everyone has a rough idea how to make people stronger. Everyone has a rough idea about even speed. So it's the, give the you know, the, the individual is the, the person that's going to be giving you the feedback that you need. Um, and from a non-clinical perspective and from a, just a coaching head, i play so much with, with pain, um, especially within dynamic movement, um, you know, listening to yourself and Jay Tura and saying about you can push a little bit into pain when you're doing like static stuff. I think when it comes to elastic movement, I think that you're playing with fire a little bit Mm -hmm. Um, just because of how fast that's happening. I just, I'm not confident in what the after effect that's like. Um, We all all know what it feels like to wake up the next morning after you've really messed with some tendons the next day because you've just done far too much of something that it did not like and aggravates it dramatically. So, it's it's using the spectrum of movements and i've actually found that to load something like an achilles works really effectively in the deep tier movements as well Mm -hmm. Um, it takes away certain like postural loading for certain joints so in certain positions you know things like the achilles are going to be loaded better or you're structurally going to be holding yourself in a position where there's still some level of Um, of load towards the tendon, but it's not dramatically fast yeah um so yeah i'm not sure that was a great answer but no that's
0: okay i'm gonna ask you a question and again it's it is it is a depends answer right so you're gonna write a you're gonna write an achilles my first block of plyometric um movements for my achilles with me okay we don't know how i'm gonna respond to it we're just gonna try and we're just gonna like nudge me into it so How many days a week would you think about it, given it first?
1: So I'm I'm working with a guy that that ruptured his Achilles in August, Mm -hmm. Uh, full rupture. So, and we're kind of at a stage now where he's been kind of jogging lightly and we're bringing in pliers now and Mm -hmm. two and a bit, and it sounds funny, but like two and like a bit, sometimes is quite good to do like a half volume measure or, or I just do deep tier movements on that day. Yeah, um, but normally at least two or three. Yeah,
0: yeah. For sure. Two is a good start, I think.
1: Absolutely, because you have yeah. that
0: like three days rest, that extra days rest in between. It can be a big deal in the beginning.
1: Yeah, um, with, with, with the third day, what I tend to do is the two and a half kind of thing. Is I I'll break the the, the two larger sessions will be furthest apart, and that middle one will be more about more about deep tier, more metabolic load, and being able to get more blood flow. Cool. Things. Yeah, um, so. It, yeah, it would tend to be if we're a real basic starting point you're probably playing with something like seven or eight movements and you're realistically probably going to get because you're using light tier movements at the beginning and it's very extensive and rudimentary to start with um, mm-hmm. you're probably going to get 100 150 landings.
0: Okay. Um, cool.
1: Over, over the first couple of weeks.
0: Yeah. Can you um, give me an example of some of those seven to eight movements? Doesn't have to be exact but just at, yeah, so, off the top of so your head. If
1: you would definitely be using initially you'd be using forward linear bilateral loops. Mm -hmm. Um, you'd definitely be using a, a split stance leap. I wouldn't exchange it straight away just because there's a a speed element to the exchange. So there's an unknown of when I exchange, what does that front foot now have to deal with? Um, and I wouldn't be touching unilateral pliers probably until like know verbal feedback of saying i've not had pain doing this these movements for the first three to four weeks especially um and and you can be quite just simply progressive in terms of the volume that you're integrating um week probably week three or four i'm bringing in backwards bilateral movement Mm -hmm. and at the same time i'm probably week two i'm bringing in um exchanging movements okay um i i find that I find that doing things laterally is quite unique as well with how we use the the foot, especially with how we sweep the foot and how that loads the Achilles, which is quite unique. So I I do have quite a bit and I'll do that in a split and a stagger stance and a normal bilateral stance as well.
0: Okay. Um, So so. it could be in a split. Yeah. So a split, a split, you would call that a split. Let me get this one, split leap. Yeah, a split leap or I go straight up and land, but I could go split leap and leap left a little bit and keep leaping to the left as I go exactly. and then back to yeah. the right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um yeah. And then, I, I'm a big fan of that frontal plane, that that media lateral as well, especially yeah. with Achilles and um or actually Annie, Annie, Achilles shin. I had a guy recently put up a post with his uh sesamoid issues, and we were just doing like um that kind of skater hop side to side you would call it actually a skater bound side to side i'm getting it and um you just see that like you see that eversion and inversion of the foot and the calcaneus that does wonders for people absolutely yeah yeah and
1: and then we'll start to integrate like real and it's a really basic way to to term it but like kind of real burner movements where we're doing like super high volumes in a, you know, we'll get to like week five where we're starting to think about we're going to progress this a little bit more intensity and we'll Mm -hmm. do things. I'll do things like circle, uh, leaps where we'll progress forward, but we'll be doing it in a small circle as we Mm. move forward. And you're looking at probably close to a hundred landings in like a 10 meter length of, of, of travel.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and we'll go both ways and especially because we're we're doing a bit backwards and we're moving laterally and forward in, in one kind of sequence um those sort of that's the only way i can describe it it's just highly extensive kind of athlete walks away like jesus that is lower mm. legs are being set on fire doing that sort of stuff i think that it's, is
0: phenomenal i think if i when i have when i have a son hopefully i'll have a son someday what i could do with my daughter as well like yeah. I would get them in the gym, but if I could train them doing all of that stuff for years and years and years, yeah, they're going to just,
1: yeah, exactly. So, grammar. and that, and the worst one of all is doing that in a, in a hot, in a single leg variation and that, that will come in like week nine or 10, uh, where we're, we're, we're integrating more intense stuff and unilateral stuff in a, mm-hmm. in a more ex- highly extensive manner.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Love it, man. Love it. That's awesome. So yeah. What uh so then just one last thing on that programming stuff. We talked about the split leap or the split exchange leap, like frontal plane or sagittal plane or whatever you're gonna do. Um can you give me a few more examples of what you might if you were to choose six or seven movements, what what a session of that might look like? The deep tier. The deep tier. Sorry,
1: yeah. Yeah, sorry. So the yeah, so the deep tier, um there's quite a few variations in terms of how you look at it. So I have We've got obviously you've got the, the different stances of leaps, um, and I'll and again in a deep tier, I'll still do that laterally. I'll still do it um, in a in a forward motion as well, um, and I'll use different cues as well to to situate things. So when I'm when I'm being really quite harsh, I do things like a double dip and then take off.
0: Mm. You know, it's it's, it's, it's like a, lo- a little oscillation.
1: A little oscillation. I like
0: the double double dip. Double <laughs> difficulty,
1: they hate the guys, hate it, <laughs> especially my old track group. They used to be like, No, yeah,
0: yeah. so that's yeah. just like getting them to feel that like slight change of direction happening, exactly, yeah. exactly. And then you're stopping momentum, dropping back down, and then yes. coming
1: up of it. Um, yeah. we'll, we'll do things like skater bounds, which I think are fantastic. Um, and we will do them on the spot as well as traveling forward. um mm-hmm. I like to use uh, leaping in a slalom fashion forward in like a deep range um, mm-hmm. because I think it, it, it's nice in terms of the stabilisation through like upper groin and stuff, adductors, and, um, and yeah. The we have we have a few variations of unilateral movements. We I have two different hops. We have what's called a one called a swan hop, which is uh, in like a T position where you're moving on one leg. You drop down pump yeah. up so you're you posted your it the
0: other day that was that was a slouchy one
1: the slouchy one is the slump bound or okay.
0: rag, or my coach you're like it. me with your names it's just yeah. Yeah. Diff, different diff, what it looks like i just name it <laughs>
1: exactly exactly it used to be called the ragdoll bound because it looks like a ragdoll yeah yeah, of yeah. so yeah we i use that one and i love that one that's yeah. uh that's that's uh, it's just, it's so good when I think about all the movements that I was introduced to when I, when I was an athlete, yeah. um, and it, it'd almost be like two or three movements within a plyometric session. I just completely knew that Eric would just bring it into the mix. Yeah, and-
0: that's unbelievable. That's so good. So you have very little need for like box, plyo boxes and hurdles and all of this stuff. You just move your body. Think of any amount of ways. Zero, zero, <sighs> nothing. So, so good.
1: What, what I will always preach is freedom of movement. I cannot stand hurdles being in the way of people trying. Like watching a, a coach lay out hurdles in the worst fashion possible, like, and an athlete's like this trying to get their feet in between. Mm-hmm. I'm like, if it destroys what happens on the ground, it's, that's it. You just walk away. You're, you're not getting what you want out of it. So, and it's the same with boxes. People, are, oh, do you use box jumps? No, I just jump into the air because it's the exact same principle. Do you need do you need a hurdle to create a stimulus? No, I just build a relationship with an athlete where I can get a stim, I can create a stimulus for using a verbal cue. Um, yeah. And freedom of movement is is the, the the biggest thing that they possess. Then it's it's something that they can take hold of and focus on the ground more than
0: anything else. Yeah. That's unreal. I absolutely love that if that if people if if especially especially in the rehab process, because well, especially in any process, just movement. But like in the rehab process with people you are typically dealing with people who have lost confidence, a little bit of confidence, either in a local tissue or in their body as a whole. They've just lost confidence and you're not seeing that expression in movement. You're seeing tension. So that's um, that's so good, man. So, so good. Okay, I have a generic question, which is: You're on a desert island. You might have heard, heard Jake's answer, which wasn't very good. <laughs> Shout out, Jake! I think I can't remember who he brought. Maybe John Locke was one of them. Um, uh, you can bring three coaches, dead or alive, if you want. Wow, um, who are you going to bring?
1: Who am I going to bring? Um, I think Charlie Francis would probably be out there. It would be. It would be interesting to. Um, to have him there. What I do you know what's really biased is I'd love to to be on there with with my mentor Eric, and have me him someone like Charlie Francis, someone like Dan Pfaff, and and for and for us then to discuss things and learn and and because I I look at the relationship that we have uh, from myself and him uh, him being my mentor. Um, we do so much together um, and we honestly, we have a, an email conversation, but we don't do much of this because he's not that technically minded, but we email back and forth probably four or five, six times a week. And we've done so for the last 12 years. So like the, the conversation that we have is so, we're so integrated into how both of us think and stuff. So it's so like, if, if I was to do something like that, it would definitely have to be with him. So it's, yeah, it's quite biased towards that. But I think the way that he would then find things that we would learn.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He'd be able to tell me more about it and how we can understand that as, a, mm-hmm. a, as two people that work together. Um, but yeah, I think Charlie Francis would be up there. I've spoken to Dan Faff a few times and I just love some of his, some of his stuff. I'm, it's quite biased towards track and field, unfortunately. Hey,
0: it's your, uh, it's your <laughs> island, so you whatever you want. That sounds, that sounds pretty good to me. Uh, not for Koshansky, no.
1: Oh, yes. That... <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Dr. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh,
0: I'll leave you have one more. You can bring him as well. I'd have to, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I apologize. Yeah, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Um, you should run a, you should run a, um, if you're ever back in the UK with your, with Eric, yeah. if there was a little workshop or something like that, I'd definitely go.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's two things in the, yeah we're, we're, we're putting a few things together and um, mm-hmm. so there'll be, there'll be lots more work that's coming out from him and um, mm-hmm. yeah over brilliant.
0: the next few months um, cool. but yeah you need to get people like that their work out there you know not to be morbid like or anything like before but you know yeah. like the, that work cool. has to be there like you don't want to lose that work um for whatever reason um oh, yeah. I, I know you're doing a good job with that what um what okay where where can people find you or where would you like people to to go to um
1: i'm most active on on instagram just mckinnis at mckinnis watson um and and go to plus plus if you if you want to know more about plyometrics um i've got a like a links in my bio with um with quite a few articles that i've written and um, for a few companies and um, a few courses that i've been part of and yeah just Go to Plus Buys, you'll find plenty of stuff on there. It's going to be continually kind of developing over the next few months. Um, we're pretty new to things, we're only two years in, so yeah, it's an ever-growing thing. Um, yeah, and reach out to me on, on social media. I'm um, I love talking this stuff. Um, so yeah, I
0: appreciate it. Cool. Yeah, and, is the is the business going well? Yeah, really subscription really well. stuff.
1: Yes, yes, it's okay. a subscription-based service, um, and it's Educational as well as program based, um, and it's going to be branching out a little bit. Eric's bringing some some new stuff, uh, a new term that he calls polymetrics. So it's going to be interesting. This looking at it's looking at, um, it's looking at um, isometrics and tension with movement, um, which is going to I think is going to be a nice bridge between that sort of work and plyometrics and, and dynamic yeah. stuff so uh, the next few months it's going to be interesting
0: cool I'm looking forward to it alright man thank you very much thanks ever so much